It is great to be back today. We have had a pulpit exchange with First United Methodist Church and Evangel Heights United Methodist Church, and uh, it's been a, a joy to uh, preach in those congregations while Pastor Vicki and Pastor Michelle were here. It's funny, whenever I start a sermon as a guest preacher, I always start the, the same way. I just let them know that um, preaching in someone else's congregation is win-win. Is because if I am fantastic, then the congregation is thankful that the pastor invited me, right? And if I am terrible, then they are quite thankful to have their pastor back. <laughs> you cannot lose guest preaching. But it struck me as I was coming back that the other side of that is much harder. Because if they were fantastic, you might not want me back. And if they were awful, you'll wonder why I invited them. I know that they were, they were great and wonderful, but it is, good. it is good to be back. The purpose of this series and these, this pulpit exchange was to, to rotate and build bridges and think about what it is that unites us as, as Christians, what unites us as followers of Jesus. I introduced this, I think it's worth returning, I introduced it at the very beginning of the series, but in Jesus... At this last gathering with the disciples, he prays with them, and he prays for them. But he does something else at that very last gathering, before he goes to the garden to pray, before he's arrested. He prays for us. He prays for you and me, which is amazing to think about, right? He prays for everybody who is going to come to believe through the witness of the disciples. That's us. And he prays specifically that we may be one, as Jesus and the Father, as Jesus and God are one, that we might be unified. And he doesn't pray this just so that we might be unified, so that we're happy and, and live together in peace. He prays it for a very specific reason, so that others may know that love of God and believe in me and Jesus as well. That's the reason for, for unity. So we've been exploring the Bible together all month. We've been exploring our United Methodist heritage all month. The table has sat in our lobby all month just as a sort of a, a reminder of this invitation to just put aside our differences to gather at the table and think about what brings us together, what unifies us. And we've discovered some things, right? We discovered that we are united by inclusion, our United Methodist table is an open table. It means that everybody is invited to the table of Jesus. We are united by the inclusion of Jesus and his invitation. We are united through grace, God's grace offered to all of us as a, as a gift. We're united through that grace. We are united in mission. We are united in this call to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And today we're going to talk and explore one more way that, that God's Word or the Bible and, and through the Bible God calls us to be united, and that is united around justice. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we are so thankful to be gathered in your presence today, united in this love of Jesus that brings us together here and, and online God, as, as I share these words, may, 
your word speak in and through them. May your will be made known. May our ears be open to hear what you would have to say to each one of us and our hearts opened to know the love of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Many of you probably know the names, at least, Anthony Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They were both Supreme Court justices. Some of you may know, but many didn't know, that they were really good friends. And if you don't know anything about them, what makes that friendship amazing is that they were on polar opposite sides of the legal and political spectrum. They first served together in the U.S. District Court of Appeals in the, in the 1980s. They became fast friends there, united essentially by their, their quest for justice, their desire for there to be justice in our land. They also shared a love of great food, a love of opera. In fact, they would later have season tickets to the opera together for years and years. Scalia once remarked of his friend Ruth Bader Ginsburg, what's not to like, except her views of the law, of course. Judge Jeffrey Sutton was a former law clerk to Scalia. He's now serving on the U.S. Court of Appeals, and he tells this story that one day he walked into Scalia's office, and on Scalia's desk were two dozen roses, and he said, that's weird, like, who, who sent you two dozen roses? And he said, no, they're not for me. It's a tradition. Every year I get my friend Ruth two dozen roses, and I just haven't taken them to her office yet. And Sutton says he remarked in hearing that, what good have all these roses done you? Name one case of any significance where Justice Ginsburg voted in your, in your way. And Scalia replied, some things are more important than votes. Some things are more important than votes. More important than votes for these two polar opposites was relationship and friendship and justice. They didn't agree on exactly how to get there, but they agreed on this concept, this idea of justice in our country. So we're going to learn a word today, if you don't already know it, a Hebrew word, so you're ready for jeopardy when it comes up. The word is mishpat. Can you say that with me? Say mishpat. Mishpat is the word in the Old Testament most often translated as justice. It appears over 400 times. So it's a, it's a word that bears some weight that is talked about a lot, particularly in the Old Testament. The root of the word mishpat is judgment. Now, when, when you think judgment, what do you think about? Often, when we think about judgment, we think about the negative, right? We think about this idea of, of punishment for wrongdoing, well, you're going to face judgment so that essentially everybody's brought back to the equal playing field. You tried to make it unequal, there's judgment, and now we're going to, going to make the playing field equal. As we'll see today, though, that the Bible use of this word also has the sense of the positive sense of judgment, which is God's judgment is this idea that everybody has enough. Everybody is provided for. Mishpat, this idea of justice, is that the judgment that says everyone everyone gets what they are due, is the best way to say it, right? Which means they're cared for, they're provided for. In God's kingdom, they know they are loved. Now, positive, this positive idea of judgment doesn't mean that what God says to God's people is going to be easy to hear, however. We're going to 
begin today this exploration of how we might be united by justice by looking at a passage in the book of Isaiah. If you want to turn there, it's Isaiah chapter 1. A little background, Isaiah talks a lot about justice. And, and to understand kind of the, the context of that, Isaiah wrote in the time 700 to 750, or 750 to 700 B.C. He's writing to the kings and leaders in that time. There were four separate kings of Judah in that time frame. Two kingdoms, there was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom was Judah. The Assyrian Empire was on the rise at the time. They were beginning to expand in, in all directions, including an eye toward Egypt. And with an eye toward Egypt, Israel and Judah weren't necessarily rich in resources, but they, were the, they controlled the road between the rest of the east and Egypt. And so Assyria set their their force in that direction, and Israel in that time frame would fall. Judah, for a long time, paid tribute to Assyria. They paid high taxes to keep Assyria from invading them. But the kings began to question that and, 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 uh, and stopped paying that tribute. And Isaiah was writing to these kings with this, with this warning about what was happening in their countries. And it's a tough message to hear. Isaiah 1 we're just going to look at a couple of things. First, verse 13. Isaiah speaks on behalf of God, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Like this is God saying, like, your worship means nothing to me. And then Isaiah goes on. We're going to pick it up in verse 16. It says, wash, be clean, remove your ugly deeds from my sight, put an end to such evil, learn to do good, seek justice, mishpat, help the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Come now and let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. If they are red as crimson, they will become like wool. If you agree and obey, you will eat the best food of the land, but if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. The Lord has said this. This faithful town has become a prostitute. She was full of justice. Righteousness lived in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become impure. Your beer is diluted with water. Your princes are rebels, companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and pursues gifts. They don't defend the orphan, and the widow's cause never reaches them. Right. Isaiah is speaking to God's people, and he tells them, your worship is meaningless to me. There are people out there suffering. Some of you are even taking advantage of them. And, and so... Don't come here and, and pretend to worship like everything's great and be comfortable because it's, it's not. How many of you come to worship and you like to be comfortable? How many of you like to come to worship and be made uncomfortable? Right? We, I, I'm with you. We, we come because we want to hear about how we're loved. And, and many of us, I've used this analogy or people use this analogy of filling our tank. So we, we've got energy for the week ahead. Like, like we want to be comfortable and filled. And, and yes, that is absolutely part of the gospel. But there's a, another piece in God's word that I think 
calls us to let ourselves be challenged, to let ourselves be uncomfortable. The question becomes, should we be sitting here and comfortable and feeling great about ourselves while people are suffering and hurting and in pain in the world? God desires justice, provision, and care for all. And so the prophets, they give this warning, and they say, you know what, without justice, without needs being met, without care in your community for everyone, your community will be too weak to withstand the powers that stand on its edges. Your community will not be able to stand in the challenges to come if there is not justice. And the prophecy becomes true. Not right away, but Judah will also begin following pagan idols, stop taking care of the needy and the hurting, and fall to Babylon. The prophets invite us to let our discomfort reveal something really important. We are, you can be united around God's call to justice. Think about this for a moment. Like, we talk about this at the heart of who we are as people in this country, in the United States of America. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to this republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible with and for all. Right, the scriptural idea stands at the very heart of who we say we are as people of the United States of America. And I wonder if we can't find unity, if we can't sit down at the table and put aside our differences and hear that we are unified by this call for justice. Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative. I think, I hope we all agree on this, that no one should starve to death or go without food on their table. No one should not have a roof over their heads. No child should not even have a chance because of educational offerings to, to make a living for themselves or the, the family that they will have. God invites us as a, as a starting place to unity to hold on to this idea of God's call for justice. What do I require of you? Micah says, another prophet, do justice, mishpat, love kindness, walk humbly with God. But notice here, it's not just like think about justice. It's not just talk about justice. It's do justice. Do something so that every need is met so people are provided for and cared for. We are united as God's people in pursuing God's call to create a just and Christ-like community. Right? Jesus picks up this call for justice. And notice how much of his ministry is, is directed toward those on the outside and those who are hurting and those who are in pain and those who are suffering. And he calls on the Pharisees, the people of God, and the disciples, and he challenges them and says, you can't be comfortable as long as these people are on the outside and don't feel the love and provision of God. 
We may not all agree on how we get there, right? That's politics. But we can find unity even when our politics aren't the same in the end goal of this idea of God's justice. Enacting God's justice is central to who we are as God's people, God's church. So we might ask one more important question today, which is, what is this justice that unifies us? What, is it, what does it look like? And we're going to turn to Jesus for that. Matthew 20, if you want to go there in your Bibles, Jesus, Jesus is teaching, and he shares this, this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. After he agreed with the workers to pay them a denarian, he sent them into his vineyard. Then he went out at around nine in the morning and saw others standing around the marketplace doing nothing. He said to them, you also go to the vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. And they went. Again around noon and then at three in the afternoon, the landowner did the same thing. Around five in the afternoon, he went and found others standing around and he said to them, why are you just standing around here doing nothing all day long? Because nobody has hired us, they replied. He responded, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the workers and give them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and moving on finally to the first. When those who were hired at five in the afternoon came, each one received a denarian. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received one denarian. When they received it, they grumbled against the landowner. These who were hired last worked one hour and they received the same pay as we did, even though we had to work in the whole day in the hot sun. But the landowner replied to one of them, friend, I did you no wrong. Didn't I agree to pay you a denarian? Take what belongs to you and go. I want to give to this one who was hired last the same as I give to you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what belongs to me? Or are you resentful because I'm generous? So those who are last will be first, and those who are first will be last. I can't speak for everybody, but I'm going to guess at least a few of you had the same thought that I did when I first started reading this story, and that was, that's not fair. Anybody? Like, it's not fair. The people who work all day in the hot sun get the same pay as people who are like there for an hour. Like, what is fair about that? And I, I have a sense that Jesus tells this story for that very reason. For us to identify with those who are like, that's not fair. But the thing is, when you look at that, then you realize that we are defining that justice from our vantage point. We put ourselves in the, in the shoes of the workers that started at the beginning of the day, and justice is defined from our vantage point, not from the landowner, not from God's. And the story helps us begin to realize justice isn't about me. Justice is about us. Justice isn't about some of us, just one group. Justice is about all of us. 
And maybe most important, justice isn't defined from our perspective or my perspective. Justice comes from God's perspective. We might think about it this way. If, if we invited, if I had $300 to give away, and we invited three people up here, we were like, well, how, how should we distribute the $300? The easiest way would be to give each person $100. That's fair, right? It's $300. That, that makes it simple. It seems fair to many of us. But if we dig a little bit deeper at what's happening in the world, we might realize that one of those three people doesn't have enough to put food on their table right now in their life. And then wouldn't justice, God's justice, look like giving all $300 to the person who can't put food on the table if the others are fine and putting food on their table and, and have enough? Right? Justice isn't defined from my perspective. It's from God's perspective. And justice is enough that we can all eat. It's enough that we can all know that we are valued and, and loved There's an interesting line in Jesus' story. The landowner says, or are you resentful because I'm generous? Are we resentful because God is generous? The landowner goes out and he hires workers, right? And at the, I don't know why, but at the end of the day, the story is very clear that he goes back and there are some workers there and he's like, why haven't you been hired? And they're like, nobody's hired us all day. Any, any of you, the one who was picked last for sports teams when you were a kid in school? Right, you know how that feels. I don't know why they were picked last. I don't know if they were scrawny and they, people didn't think they'd be very good workers. I don't know if they had a bad working track record. What I do know is that the landowner goes and he finds those at the end of the day who weren't hired by anybody else, and probably day after day were the ones that weren't hired anybody else and needed that one denarian just to make a living. And he brought them in, and he treated them with the same love and care as, as everybody else to make sure that they had enough to provide for themselves and their families. Justice is looking out for those with nothing. Justice is everyone knowing the generosity of the one who created us. Are you willing to be uncomfortable with me for a moment? I've had the opportunity over the last several months to work directly with two families in the community. Obviously, as a pastor involved with care in, in lots of ways through people, but in this case, I've gotten to know the ins and outs of, of the lives for both families. One of those is a, a family that moved here from Chicago and struggling to, to put things together and make it. They were struggling in Chicago. They moved here for a job. And they realized pretty quickly that when in moving here, one of the things they didn't think about was there's public transportation in Chicago, but to get to a job here, they were going to have to have a car. And so they, they bought a car, and then in the midst of their lives, tragedy struck and living at the poverty line plus tragedy, it was one thing after another of trying to just help them keep a roof over their head and, and food on their table. As I'm working with them, one of the things that comes up is the car, and they'd been contacted multiple times by this loan company that was, uh, was saying they were going to repossess it. And the car, they bought the car, I don't remember how much it was, but 
thousands of dollars, and, and they took a loan for it, and, um, and it was a lemon. It was the, air, a, a, uh, the AC and the heat weren't working, and uh, the catalytic converter was having problems. I mean, the car was, was a mess. But they had these huge payments every month, and so I'm like, let's call, I'll, I'll call with you, let's call the lender and, and find out if there are ways to help. Well, they were not going to back down on the repossess without a certain amount of money. And then I asked, I'm like, well, tell me, you know, what are the terms of the loan, how much is it to pay it off? And the loan interest rate was 26%. I had bought a car at about the same time, and my loan rate was 2.9%. Over the course of the same amount of time of, of paying off the loan, I'm going to pay like, I don't know, $3,000 in interest if I, if I don't pay it off faster. They were going to pay $11,000, much more than the value of the car, just in interest. The lender would probably say, what's fair? I'm taking a risk, so I, I have to build that cost into the risk. And I, I mean, I get it. But what is justice? What does justice look like in our world for a family that's just fighting to get above the poverty line. It's another family in our, our community, a refugee family who's, who's moved here and working hard, more than one job, saving to try and get a, get a house, and we were talking about trying to help them, to help them get to the point where they could buy a house, and we were, we were having this conversation, and a couple people who knew their finances well, you know, were, were talking about, um, you know, jobs and, and what that looked like and how much they were going to need. And somebody said, well, could they get one more job, which would be like a, probably a third job. Could they get one more job to just get to that place where they had enough? And someone else pointed out, well, if they work one more job, it'll put them over the Medicaid and assistance line. And once they tiptoe above that line, they lose Medicaid. When they lose Medicaid, they've got to figure out uh, health insurance for a family for a family with kids, and it would just cripple them. There's just, there's just no way out of the systems that they're trapped in. There's this story in America, and it's probably a story around the world that we love to tell. It's the, the story of rags to riches, the person who begins with nothing, and then you know, they, they just work hard, and they find their way to, to fortune in life. And I don't, wouldn't maybe go so far as to say that that story is a myth, but it is certainly not the majority. It is, a, it is an outlier in the truth of what it's like to live in systems of poverty and struggle. And even I have to admit, I have lived mostly unaware of a 26% interest rate for somebody trying to borrow money. The prophet's invitation is to wake up and see. To name the injustice, to name the hurt and the pain. And then, and then to hear God's call to be people of justice, not just to sit comfortably in worship, but to let that discomfort drive us to make a difference in the world, to make our communities more Christ-like. Isaiah, seek justice, right? Isaiah says it's not too late. Yeah, if, if, you, if you don't take care of everybody, your community and country are only going to get weaker and weaker, but it's not, it's not too late. God wants to be in this with you. He says the way to do that, seek justice, seek mishpat, provision for all. To do that, help the oppressed. 
defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Mishpat is often accompanied by the people to help, the poor, the blind, the the lame, the widow, the orphan, the sojourner or, or foreigner, the people on the outside. Justice will reign when needs are met, people are provided for and loved. Part of the gift of being part of, of this congregation, the United Methodist Church in, in South Bend and our, our joint ministries here in the United Methodist Church is that we have this commitment to God's justice. The United Methodist Church has a long history of advocating for social justice. John Wesley, when he, when he began the movement that became the Methodist Church, the small group that was meeting every, every week, they would go to the to the prisons to make sure that prisoners were being respected and cared for, and they would go and tutor orphans and children in children's homes. Wesley himself wrote and shared against um, abusive animals, and he wrote and shared against slavery. The early Methodists expressed their opposition to societal ills, again, slavery and smuggling and inhumane prison conditions and inhumane work conditions and alcohol abuse and, and child labor. I had an opportunity a number of years ago to, to visit Ellis Island. I don't know how many of you have been there, if you noticed this, but there's a display there. There's a display there about the Methodist women um, and how they, cared for, um, how they cared for immigrants as they came. And some of those immigrants would come into the country, many wives whose husbands were already here. Some would be sent back. It didn't matter. The Methodist women would bring food and, and care items and things for the women who were going to come into the country to to sort of freshen up and, and new clothes so that they could go and, and meet their husbands. The sense of providing for those with needs. What does that look like? What is our call as a church? I, I've been reading a lot of Dietrich Bonhoeffer lately. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a pastor and a theologian in the time of Nazi Germany. Um, he, uh, he spoke against Hitler and the, and the Nazi regime while the church was just sort of falling in line with Hitler. Bonhoeffer presented a different voice. And then some friends said, you're putting yourself in danger. And they brought him to the United States to teach at Union Theological Seminary here. But eventually he said, I need to go back. I cannot be a witness with, with the people. And I can't be a witness when this is passed if I'm not with the people who are suffering there. And so he went back. He would eventually get tied in. There's lots of sort of questions in history to a, an, into a plot to assassinate Hitler and um, whether he was involved or whether he knew people was involved. He ended up in prison and was, um, was killed in a concentration camp just a few days before, before, it was, uh, before Hitler died and before the war ended. He talked a lot about justice in the midst of a time of incredible injustice in our world. And this is what he said in a variety of places. First, a, a letter to a friend. He said, we must finally stop appealing to theology to justify our reserved silence about what the state is doing. For that is nothing but fear. Open your mouth for the one who is voiceless. For who in the church today still remembers that that is the least of the Bible's demands in times such as these. Open your mouth for the voiceless. 
In a 1935 sermon, he said this, Christianity stands or falls with its revolutionary protest against violence, arbitrariness, and pride of power, and with its plea for the weak. Christians are doing too little to make these points clear rather than too much. Christendom itself adjusts far too easily to the worship of power. Christians should give more offense, shock the world more than they are doing now. Christians should take a stronger stand in favor of the weak rather than considering first the possible right of the strong. And then this quote from Bonhoeffer, we are not to simply bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheel of injustice. We are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. Will we allow ourselves to be uncomfortable as long as injustice continues? Will we allow ourselves to be uncomfortable while others are hurting? The easy answer is no, right? We don't want to be uncomfortable. It's a lot easier just to be comfortable. It's a lot easier just to pretend that the, the rest of the world is fine because we're fine and, and things, things are fine. But the prophets and the Jesus, the prophets and Jesus, they, they say something else, that God is upset. God is angry. God is frustrated when God's church gathers together and worships and doesn't pay attention to those who are hurting in the world or worse yet, participates in the systems that are harmful. Are we willing to be uncomfortable? The second answer that would be really easy would be say, yes, Pastor Brian, I'm, I'm ready to be uncomfortable, but don't ask me to do anything because I don't even know where to begin. I don't know what to do. I, I, I understand justice, but, uh, but I, don't know, I, don't, I don't necessarily want to be called to do anything about it. But again, the prophets and Jesus say, say something else. They say God's kingdom will come when we, the people of God, the body of Christ, get out there and work for justice by caring in our community, by speaking up for those who are weak. That's what, that's what Jesus did. The prophets and Jesus invite us to let our discomfort drive us, not into guilt, not into shame, but into the grace of Jesus, to recognize that, yeah, these, these systems exist, and maybe we've been a part of them, but we also have the agency and the love and grace of Jesus Christ to speak goodness and mercy into the world through our actions and through our words and our witness. How will we respond? Let me suggest that maybe a first step can be just to learn and share what we're, what we're learning read a book, have a, have a conversation with somebody. There's an opportunity Pastor Michelle talked about last week. I want to just share it again. There's a book called Our Hearts Were Strangely Lukewarm, and on Tuesday nights there'll be a Zoom Bible study in the month of February. It's a, it's, it's a relatively easy read, easy in the sense of, of, the, uh, of the reading, not necessarily content, but an opportunity to talk and hear from others. It's really about racism in the United Methodist Church. And I, I will send these to you, but I, I wanted to just give three other starting places to learn. Three books to read. One 
is a book called Evicted by Matthew Desmond. He also wrote a book called Poverty in America, which is really good. But it talks about the housing challenges of people in the country today. The second book to, uh, to think about injustice right here in our own community of South Bend is a, is a book called Better Homes of South Bend by Gabrielle Robinson. It talks about redlining that happened right here to people of color in, in South Bend, Indiana. And the third book is called The New Jim Crow. It's by Michelle Alexander, and it addresses the prison systems and injustices in the prison system. Just three places to start, to, to learn, to grow, to, to share. And then to begin to ask the question, as a follower of Jesus, what can I, what can we do? Justice. As the people of Christ, may we be united. United by this picture that, that God gives us of a world where there's, where there's peace and goodness because the people of God are caring for people where they're, where they're meeting needs. May we be united in this sense that it's our mission to go out and share the love of Jesus in ways that, that transforms lives. May we be united in a grace that anchors us in the, in the love and the gift of Jesus, forgives our sins so that we can be made clean and whole May we be united in the fact that the table of Jesus is open to everyone. And our role as the people of God is to make sure that everybody knows that invitation and the embrace of Jesus Christ as they come to that table. Amen. Amen.